The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good evening, everybody. This is Joe Schuldenrein from Metropolitan New York City here in Yonkers, New York. Uh, we have a special episode today on Indiana Jones myth, reality, and 21st century archaeology. Our topic is another in a series that has become quite popular, which involves the archaeological component of detecting stimulants, and uh, specifically the habits that early Americans and actually early Europeans and prehistoric Americans and uh, populations across the world in general, but more generally focused on the New World, their experiences with tobacco, alcohol, and the range of stimulants that have been identified in the archaeological record and which have also been used to reconstruct behaviors of those peoples through time with the use of these substances. We have had a very extensive and very widespread response to these programs because they seem to uh, titillate the fancy of a lot of folks, not just professionals, but also people who are curious, people in the greater community who are curious as to how we reconstruct not only patterns of consumption, but also behavior patterns related to these substances. Today we're going to be talking about alcohol in particular, and we will be speaking with Dr. Frederick H. Smith, who is an associate professor of Anthropology and Archaeology at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. He is the author of Caribbean Rum, A Social and Economic History, published in 2005 by the University of Florida, and also The Archaeology of Alcohol and Drinking, which is a more recent publication dated to 2008. He has published extensively on the role of alcohol in Caribbean society, and he works especially in the the area in, in Barbados, and he draws on archaeological, documentary, and ethnographic evidence. And these are the sorts of interdisciplinary areas of in inquiry that we attempt to look at when we look 
at archaeology in a very holistic sense. I'm struck by one of Dr. Smith's comments on uh, the reason that he does this work. He uh, has said in his prefatory remarks that he explores the reasons why people drink, drank, especially sociability, anxiety, boredom, health, and the maintenance of old world traditions. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Fred Smith to the program. Thank you for appearing. Uh, Thank you for having me. Let's get down to begin and uh, open up the discussion with this this last phrase that that I'm citing. You're interested in the reasons why people drank, uh, specifically uh, converging on sociability, anxiety, boredom, health, and maintenance of old world traditions. Can you expound a little bit on that? And with respect to that theme, how did you get interested in the topic in the first place? Uh, Well, that's a good question. When I was um, a graduate student at the University of Florida, I began doing archaeological work in the island of Barbados, and I was interested in the time and looking at the development of uh, slave societies. How how did slave societies um, uh, develop in Barbados? How was that different from uh, the development of of slave communities uh, in North America? And I had done much of my early work in places like Colonial Williamsburg and, and in Virginia, where there's been a great deal of work done on, on um, enslaved peoples and the, the maintenance of West African traditions and the continuity of West African traditions uh, in the Americas. And there had been some work done uh, earlier in Barbados, um, but I was um, particularly interested in the urban context and did some work in Bridgetown, and one morning, Saturday morning, uh, I got a call from a group of construction workers uh, who knew I was an archaeologist, who knew I was in the island, and they had uncovered some skeletal remains in an area of Bridgetown uh, that they were doing a, a supermarket project. And they called me and asked me to come take a look at the, the remains they had found. And sure enough, um, there were skeletal remains, and they were actually human skeletal remains. And what they had uncovered was a uh, burial ground for enslaved peoples, an unmarked burial ground that had long since faded. Um, and these were almost certainly immediately uh, clear that they were uh, the slaves. Uh, they were the, the graves of enslaved peoples. Uh, there were no grave markers. Um, the area had actually built up um, uh as sort of a supermarket shopping mall area. And um, so it, we spent the day, me and some of the students from the University of the West Indies, excavating uh, this burial ground and removing some of the skeletal remains for further study to bring those back to the university. And at the end of the day, uh, some of the construction workers and some of the, the people from the local neighborhood, uh, somebody shouted, uh, we, need to, we need to pour libations. We need to... Uh, make the, the duppies rest in peace and hadn't heard the word duppies before, but duppies were basically a reference to the, the ghosts, the spirits of the enslaved peoples who were buried at this burial ground. And so, sure enough, within a few minutes, somebody in the crowd had gone to the local rum shop and uh, procured a bottle of rum, brought it back to the construction site, poured it into the graves. Uh, an older gentleman 
uh, in the group, uh, poured it on me and poured it on the students <laughs> who were doing the excavation. <laughs> and uh, and it just led me to, to, to wonder where these traditions came from. And, uh, and it was sort of uh, coincidental that there was actually a broken bottle in the graves uh, themselves. And uh, that the individuals who had been buried at this site had, had been buried with grave goods, which consisted of tobacco pipes, thinking of other stimulants, um, and uh, bottles. And these bottles probably contained rum uh, back in the 17th century, 18th century, when the, when the deceased were buried in these, these graves. And so it led me to, to really begin to explore the role of alcohol in Caribbean societies, the role of rum, uh, which is pervasive, deeply ingrained in the social fabric of, of the Caribbean, and, uh, and to, to really look to see where these traditions came from. So the uh, ethnographic analogy, not the ethnographic analogies, but the ethnographic background and the tradition of pouring the rum, is that something you are not familiar with at all? Well, no, not at all. Uh, I never really thought about it. I mean, when you go to the rum shops in Barbados or Jamaica, uh, uh, Puerto Rico, any place in the Caribbean, um, oftentimes the uh, shop owner, when, when you open, or, or the customers, when you open a bottle of rum, you'll pull, pour a few drops on the ground for, for the ancestors, right, for the, for the duppies. And that's something that, that I've witnessed, but I never really questioned before. But this event that happened that day at this, this unmarked burial ground at this construction site really um, hit me hard and, and really made me uh, uh, think that, okay, this is a question that, that nobody's really addressed uh, archaeologically, anthropologically, and right. I ran with it as far as I could and ended up with two books. Well, this is interesting because, I mean, clearly there is some kind of institutional memory that has sustained for the course of over 300 years here. Obviously, local residents know of this, and, and they're attuned to it. Is it still a common practice in burials um, to undertake this type of a ritual? Yeah, uh, it's mostly among the older generation, but... Um uh, I, I'm sure that the younger generation uh, learns as well, and I've I've seen it uh, happen. Yeah, just about every time I go to a rum shop, every time I see um, people open a new bottle of rum, uh, there's always a, a reference to and uh, recognition of of those that went before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think it was what was particularly telling was the was the event at the at the burial ground with all these graves and all these skeletons uh, that we were excavating and the recognition more broadly that that the right thing to do was to appease the spirits of the dead who were buried at the site and uh, that the duppies and the spirits um, rest in peace. Now, rum is probably, uh, this is probably a bit generic, but I would say, based on what I know and what I've seen, rum seems to be the signature drink for much of the Caribbean. Uh, What do you know about rum's origins and its particular fascination in the Caribbean? I'm 
assuming it has to do with cultivation and climate and the fact that uh, rum is easy to prepare, procure in that part of the world. But where does it come from? Exactly. Uh, it is the defining feature of the Caribbean in many ways and um, uh, cheaper than water uh, in, in some cases. Uh, I think back to the popular song uh, by the Andrews sisters uh, in the early uh, 20th century, uh, Rum and Coca-Cola, uh, which is about a uh, song about uh, U.S. military uh, stationed <laughs> in places like Trinidad and mm-hmm. uh, Barbados in the, in the early 20th century, and the, the sort of mixing of Coca-Cola, which is the symbol of America, uh, with rum, which is really the symbol of, of many Caribbean islands. And the, um, the sugar industry itself is, is the basis for the rum industry. Rum is made from sugar cane. It's made from molasses, which is a byproduct of, of sugar making. Um, and it really started in the Caribbean in the 17th century, around the 1640s, uh, 1630s, 1640s. And these, um, Barbados is, is really the birthplace. Um, it's the cradle, certainly, of rum making, if not the actual birthplace of, of rum making. And it began with these English colonists coming there uh, in 1627, uh, eventually uh, producing um, sugar, sugar for the English market. Sugar was a valuable uh, commodity. It was very expensive. And these planters, who were very efficient, uh, didn't simply throw away the waste products of their sugar making, but <coughs> realized that they can make a profitable alcoholic commodity uh, out of it as well. And, um, and that's really where the rum industry started. So, so in a sense, um, uh, you know, rum is, is sort of the foundation uh, economically, socially uh, for the island. And we will be back with our discussion on rum alcohol and their emergence in the Caribbean and in the archaeological record right after these words. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. On the morning of August 5, 1962, the world awoke to the shocking news that Marilyn Monroe, one of the biggest icons in Hollywood history, had been found dead. What really happened that night? Join Nina Bosky as she seeks to uncover both the life and tragic death of Marilyn Monroe and what keeps her so popular over 50 years later. Good Night Marilyn Radio, live every Friday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. There are over 140 million products manufactured worldwide. It is impossible to know the ingredients in these products, especially those made overseas. Stan Salat, creator of the HSF Mark and the Counterfeit Mark Alliance, is the host of People to People, working together for your safety. Stan believes in our right to know the type and amount of hazardous materials in consumer products and whether they are counterfeit. Find out how you can protect yourself every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Variety. 
Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You're listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to indianajonesmythreality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Our series on stimulants, and specifically a segment here on alcohol in the New World and specifically in the Caribbean, is a topic of interest, and it has been very popular amongst our listenership for really for the past year plus. And my guest today is Dr. Frederick H. Smith, an associate professor of anthropology and archaeology at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And he has written extensively on the rum trade and the emergence of alcohol and uh, within within the uh, West African communities of the Caribbean, specifically in Barbados. Uh, Dr. Smith, I'm curious as to how we link up and how we look at the fabric of the society that was created when uh, the slavers brought the West Africans into places like Jamaica, Barbados, Trinidad and Tobago. Um, how did this complex network of rum and slavery and, and, and the British, how did that interact and network in the early days so that we get a sort of a broader picture of uh, the dissemination of the rum industry in the Caribbean? All right. Um, and that's an uh, interesting question because, as I said, the, the early English planters were looking for ways to, to make money and they realized that sugar was a valuable commodity. And as efficient planters that they were, uh, turned their, their byproducts, their molasses, um, uh, rather than dumping it in the, in the field, um, would put it uh, into their stills. Uh, distilling was becoming popular in the early 17th century and uh, made this byproduct rum. Uh, so the interesting thing is rum was, was referred to by a variety of different uh, names in the early 17th century. It was referred to as kill devil. Uh, it was referred to as, as the drink made from sugar. But the mm-hmm. name rum actually doesn't, doesn't show up until about 40 or 50 years later um, as an actual term for, for, the, for the alcoholic spirit. But with the development of the sugar industry, the early English planters, the English the early English um, colonists in Barbados um, uh, brought with them indentured servants from England, from Scotland, from Ireland, uh, and Wales largely. And that was fine for the early years, for the first 10 or 20 years um, of Barbados' development. They were sort of small farmers. They were looking for a cash crop. Uh, um, They experimented with tobacco but tobacco didn't do very well in, in early Barbados. Right. And they couldn't compete with their cousins in the Chesapeake that were producing a large amount of, of tobacco during that time. And so once they realized that sugar was a potential 
quality. And a lot of this had influence from the Dutch who were being kicked out of Brazil by the Portuguese. Uh, these Dutch helped the Barbadians establish sugar industry, their sugar industry in the 1640s. Well, all of a sudden, uh, sugar is a labor-intensive crop. It has to be uh, cultivated. Um, it has to be harvested, and it has to be processed. And you need large numbers of people, especially during the, the harvest and especially during the processing time. And they simply weren't enough uh, indentured servants coming from, from England uh, and Scotland and, and Ireland. And so they turned to the African slave trade for their source of labor. And the African slave trade had, had been developed uh, um, a century earlier, but it really um, began to, to take off in the early 17th century. And so these Barbadians, these colonists, these English investors, uh, began supplying enslaved laborers, mostly at that time in the early 17th century from the Gold Coast, what is today Ghana, um, and later on coming uh, largely from, from their factories, from their castles, from, their, um, from areas in the Bight of uh, Biafra. And so, those people. So, I, my question here, though, I, I can understand that, and I, I think that we we get the idea that once the sugar trade and, and sugarcane production was taking off in the Caribbean, then rum just sort of followed because it is clearly a byproduct of sugarcane production. But where where is the first first sugar produced? Just as a side note, um, where, where did the impetus for sugar production begin? Was it in the Caribbean or no? No, no. It's actually... Um Prior to the, the rise of sugar industries in the Caribbean, the English and most Europeans had to rely on um, sugar coming from the Levant, basically from the area of Syria, um, uh, the Mediterranean. Right. And they had to rely on Ottoman. Uh, they had to, to, to get their, their trade through the Ottoman Empire. So one of the reasons why sugar was so expensive was because it had to come from from so far away. It had it was in control of, of sort of Muslim traders and um, and so really only the elite, the wealthy in England uh, at that time could afford sugar. Ah, so then it was a logical transplant to take it into this tropical to subtropical climes of of, uh, of the islands in the Southeast Atlantic, and 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 then all of a sudden uh, that was sort of a no-brainer, in a sense, for getting sh extensive sugar cultivation in the Caribbean right. and, and to some degree also, of course, in uh, in the southeastern United States, uh, Louisiana, places like that. I get it. So, um, so then you have this mass labor force that eventually displaced uh, the the, uh, the the manpower from the original UK areas, Scotland, Wales, Ireland, etc. And then all of a sudden you had a fully blossoming industry. So mm -hmm. my question, I think, and this is one that I think a lot of professionals would be interested in as well, what about the archaeology? Where do we see in the Caribbean an archaeological record that establishes a very strong presence of rum consumption and distribution both uh, within the islands and then ultimately in, into a trading and distribution pattern. What are we noticing? What do the sites look like? 
Right. So, so um, one of the sites that I've excavated is a site known as Maps Cave, and uh, the site is a is a cave and a sinkhole complex, sort of in the outskirts, um, um, sort of a rugged area of Barbados. And um, we were exploring there one day. Uh, there had been some some oral histories, oral traditions that had indicated that enslaved peoples had used this cave as uh, maybe a shelter, uh, maybe a living quarter at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I went to investigate, and, and sure enough, there were uh, a lot of uh, ceramic materials, historic period ceramics, uh, broken bits of, uh, bits of pearlware and creamware, um, and a lot of bottle glass, uh, a lot of early colonial green glass bottles mm-hmm. and a lot of drinking mugs, uh, stoneware drinking mugs, but also a lot of um, locally made red earthenware pottery and uh, often in bowl forms. And so uh, we collected the material and uh, identified the, the different pieces and um, there was a, a disproportionate number of alcohol-related materials a lot of glass bottles, a lot of drinking mugs, but also these red earthenware uh, jars or bowls, which are very similar to the jars and bowls used in West Africa for the production of a drink known as palm wine, Mm -hmm. which was very popular. It was a fermented drink. Um, It was uh, popular in the Gold Coast, and it was popular in the Bight of Biafra, which were the two areas, the departure points for most enslaved peoples who came to Barbados. So this led me to explore um, the origins of, of sort of alcohol use in West Africa as well, because the enslaved peoples that came to Barbados were not unfamiliar with alcoholic beverages. Right. And the... Uh, there was a rich tradition of alcohol use, of palm wine use in West Africa associated with not just sociability, but also with spirituality. And the use of palm wine for facilitating communication between the physical and the spiritual worlds. And the pouring of libations, for example, at births, and marriages, and at deaths. And so the archaeological materials that I found uh, at Maps Cave, associated with alcohol use, uh, suggested that one of the things uh, that was frequently occurring at this site was drinking. That the enslaved peoples from surrounding areas were using Maps Cave as a place to to escape, as sort of an underground sanctuary, as sort like of a, a tavern, right? Like a refuge or a tavern, right? Exactly. 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 But not only were they drinking there, one of the things that I believe they were doing there uh, was producing alcoholic beverages as well. Now, they didn't have the palm trees that they had in West Africa for producing palm wine, but they did have a lot of of sugar cane. And there was a drink that was known, especially early on, uh, that um, consisted of basically a fermented sugarcane beer. They would take the stalks of the sugarcane, you would squeeze the juice into 
uh, one of these jars, add water, cover it, and allow it to ferment uh, for a few days, and it would produce an, an alcoholic drink um, equal to uh, 8, 9, 10, 11 percent. Yeast tend to die at when alcohol reaches about 11 percent. So, right. Um, so, so they were not only um, drinking, but they were also maintaining these West African traditions. They didn't lose their knowledge of alcohol making. Um, the, the violence of the Middle Passage did not wipe clean their knowledge of, of traditions that they had um, done in West Africa. Now, how many, how many sites have you excavated? Or, and, 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 I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, uh, Barbados, I've, I've been working in Barbados since uh, the early 1990s. Uh, I go back there every year. And I've excavated uh, sites associated with with sugar making, with rum making, um, villages of enslaved peoples, uh, and in the urban context of Bridgetown, looking at early British colonial settlements. And you have, I assume, been able <coughs> to identify the vestiges of production. The uh, some. I'm assuming also a little bit of the residua from from the sugarcane itself. And uh, do you have any stills that you've actually identified? Were you able to reconstruct any of those? Do you have the ingredients of that or the structural components of stills? Yeah, so, so that's a good question because uh, we've looked at uh, the, the architecture of sugar plantation boiling houses. And there's, in fact, a, a wonderful sugar plantation um, that's still in operation in Barbados today. It's, it's a wonderful tourist attraction known as St. Nicholas Abbey. And they've actually just begun, re-begun uh, rum distilling at St. Nicholas Abbey in the last uh, few years. But we've been doing a lot of archaeological work, my students and I, um, and we record um, information, architectural information, Try and determine when rum making began at that plantation, when rum making began at, at other plantations in Barbados as well. And even though um, stills themselves were made out of copper, and copper was, uh-huh. was valuable and it, it's expensive, and so when a still went, went bad uh, and broke, uh, they would use the copper for something else. Uh, it would never go to waste. It was a very efficient, efficient system. Uh, so it hasn't been so much about identifying the archaeological signature of uh, the distilling equipment, but more about identifying uh, the placement, the architectural uh, placement, the location, and the centrality of rum making um, within the broader sugar plantation complex. And we will be back with our very special guest, Dr. Fred Smith from the Departments of Anthropology and Archaeology at uh, the College of William and Mary and our discussion on alcohol and the rum industry in the Caribbean right after these words don't go away. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Want to help make our world a better place, but not sure where to start? Tune into Better Worldians Radio. 
with the creators of the social game on Facebook called A Better World. Join hosts Ray, Mary Sue, and Gregory Hansel, who will inspire you to make a big difference in small ways. They'll speak to experts, authors, volunteers, and everyday people who are changing the world daily. Better Worldians Radio is heard live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Voice America presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Listen Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel and Wednesdays at 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. This is Joe Schuldenrein, and we're back with another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Today's topic of discussion is the rum industry, and specifically in Barbados, and more generally in the Caribbean. And we have been talking about sort of the socio-cultural and uh, sort of geopolitical, in a sense, implications of what uh, alcohol and rum in particular here uh, how that how that interacts and how do that interfaces with uh, sort of a, a a broad pattern of uh, sociological and developmental circumstances in the colonies and how, and we have discussed this in several previous episodes, how the tavern, shall we say, or the drinking hole or the watering hole serves as sort of a central place for bringing people of like-minded interests together to plan and to sort of speak freely about their particular concerns, be it colonialism and when we're talking about the 18th, 17th, 18th, 19th century, and more generally political issues. And of course, the West African slave trade resulted in the presence and the uh, the enslavement of West Africans in the Caribbean, and they certainly had issues to gripe about, and uh, rum sort of just sort of accentuates, if, if you want to use that term, the, uh, the feelings, the passions, the uh, motivations that people have for, in some senses, overturning or undermining the existing political system. And uh, Dr. Smith did some work at a place called Maps Cave, and during the break he was mentioning that eventually that cave, which was a congregation 
dating place for uh, for West Africans uh, who were transported to the uh, colonies, to Barbados, for them for it was like essentially the equivalent of their tavern. So why don't you pick it up from there and tell us exactly what happened at Maps Cave and what the archaeological record has to tell us about sort of the, uh, I would say, the equivalent, say, between a, a European tavern or a British tavern setting and uh, sort of a West African place for congregating and essentially doing the same thing, drinking, talking, having a good time, and inciting revolution. Right, right. And the thing about uh, the laws in Barbados in the 17th and 18th, 19th century, uh, until 1834, slavery was abolished in 1834 in Barbados, in, in the British colonies, and um, slaves, enslaved peoples were, were uh, prevented from drinking in taverns. Um, so they couldn't drink uh, in, in taverns, so they had to find uh, clandestine areas. Um, they drank in their houses. Uh, they were given rum uh, as part of weekly rations. I mean, rum was just uh, pervasive, uh, permeated all aspects of, of slave society. Mm-hmm. Uh, children, children were given rum as sort of an enlivener in the morning to, to make them work better and whatnot. Um, rum was also thought as medicinal, and so rum was was prevalent, uh, and especially at celebrations at Easter. At Christmas, uh, the king's birthday, these were all times when rum was was doled out by the plantation owners uh, to the enslaved peoples on the estate. Um, enslaved peoples also had had weekend events, uh, dances um, uh, on in the villages, and rum flowed freely uh, during those during those times. And so, but. To get away from the village, uh, uh, where you're sort of under constant um, surveillance in many respects, I mean, it's it's hard to really hide uh, in the village, um, uh, in the slave villages, and so the cave, uh, to me, and I think to the enslaved peoples that lived in the surrounding sugar plantations, was kind of a, a central meeting place uh, for slaves from from a variety of different plantations where they could escape the view of the, the plantocracy, the planters and the overseers, uh, where they could get away from the, the domestic life of, of the village. And it was sort of an underground, subterranean sanctuary, uh, a refuge, like you say, where, where uh, I'm sure mostly men, uh, maybe women as well, uh, could drink um, and could, uh, not just drink, but but maintain West African traditions about leadership, about charisma, uh, about speaking with authority. I mean, where do you learn um, uh, your skills, your oratory skills? And oftentimes, as we know, after you have a few drinks, you can definitely speak with a lot more authority uh, than you could uh, sober. And so... The cave itself provided a, a, a sanctuary, a refuge, uh, for slaves from surrounding estates. And what's interesting is that in 1816, there was uh, a slave revolt in Barbados, the largest slave revolt in Barbados' history, the most mm-hmm. successful rebellion. And that revolt actually occurred uh, on the plantations surrounding uh, Maps Cave at a plantation known as Bailey's Plantation, 
plantation known as Three Houses, and Maps Cave as well, or Maps Plantation as well. So the the um, leader of that revolt, uh, many people say, uh, was a man named Bassa, who was actually a, a driver on Bailey's Plantation. And one of the things, um, and that revolt occurred on Easter in 1816. And Easter celebrations, again, were a time when rum flowed freely, slaves were given some time off, um, uh, you know, these were sort of uh, liminal times, you know, sort of rituals of rebellion, in a sense, when um, uh, slaves have freedom to, to sort of roam more freely. And one of the things I, I suggest is that the cave may have been a sanctuary, not just for the slaves, but for their ideas of rebellion. And the mm-hmm. fact that we know that a lot of slaves' conspiracies, revolts, were fomented in clandestine areas, uh, on sort of the edges of multiple plantations, in sort of forested areas, in um, kind of liminal places. Uh, the Maps Cave, uh, much like taverns in Boston prior to the American Revolution, or much like cafes in Paris prior to the French Revolution, may have served as sort of a, a sanctuary, a place uh, to foment rebellion, um, and and that would have been enhanced uh, by the use of alcohol. That would have the ideas of revolution may have been um, made more convincing through drink and through camaraderie and through the exchange of ideas by enslaved peoples um, at Maps Cave and at perhaps other areas uh, in the surrounding area. So tell me a little bit about the cave itself. I mean, caves, as many archaeologists are familiar with, are sort of self-contained little, I don't know, sanctums, if you will, that uh, sort of preserve a record of occupation of a group or series of groups of people who do very much the similar, the same sorts of things. And, and they pervade, pre- preserve a very unique record of discard in production and subsistence, if you will. What did you, how big is your cave, Maps Cave, and what did you find in those excavations that lead you to reconstruct, if not this very extensive scenario, certainly a more limited uh, scenario for uh, occupying the cave and for performing whatever activities were performed there? Right, so it's a, it's an interesting feature, an interesting geologic feature. Barbados is a limestone island, so there are caves dotted throughout the uh, Barbados. But this is a relatively large cave, uh, about 35 meters by 20 meters wide. Um, and what's interesting uh, is that the, the earliest occupants, uh, the earliest use of the cave was actually by Amerindian peoples, uh, a group in the Caribbean known as the Swayzoid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we found uh, Swayzoid materials inside the, the cave. Uh, um, these are pre, act- pre-contact, right? Pre-contact, right. These are probably around 1,200, 1,300, 1,400, um, you know, before Columbus uh, in 1492, that the cave was being used by Amerindian peoples. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because most of the sites associated with the prehistoric pre-contact peoples of Barbados 
are along the coast. Right. And Maps Cave is actually located uh, about three or four kilometers inland. So the site itself um, perhaps had some symbolic significance to the Amerindian peoples uh, in that region. Um, and we found materials uh, dating back to those to its use during that time. Now, what's interesting about that is that some of those Amerindian materials were actually found in historic period levels, in the early sort of 17th century uh, layers of geography. Mm-hmm. Right. And what I think may have been happening is that the cave during the first 30, 40, 50 years of Barbados's history uh, was located in a pretty isolated space that um, that it may uh, have been a refuge for runaway slaves. Barbados uh-huh. is a small small island, uh, unlike Jamaica, which which had which still today has a permanent maroon community. Um, by the by, the middle late 17th century, essentially all the arable land, all the land in Barbados was was taken up by sugar plantations. Um, but, but for the first 30, 40, 50 years, uh, this area of Barbados remained relatively undeveloped. And we know from, for example, cave sites in the Dominican Republic and in Cuba and in Puerto Rico that there's evidence to suggest that uh, perhaps runaway slaves, maroons, um, used these caves as hideouts and I think in the case of, of Maps Cave, it may have been uh, used as a, as a hideout, and that the enslaved peoples um, uh, at this, who used the cave actually recycled some of the Amerindian materials uh, to help them survive during their, during their flight. And unlike the, the permanent maroon communities, Barbados, as I say, is too small, um, but it may have served as a, as a temporary place of escape in mm. those first decades of Barbados' settlement. We'll, uh, we'll get back to that discussion in a minute. Uh, stay tuned on this fascinating discussion on uh, archaeology and alcohol and the Caribbean. We will resume after these words. Stay tuned. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Conservation starts with us. Learn about environmental concerns each week when you tune in to Our Wild World with host Ellie Weiss. Our show centers on Africa each week and what's being done to save our wildlife, ecology, and ourselves. However, we'll also discuss what's going on closer to home. And most importantly, we'll let you know what can be done in our own backyards by featuring guest experts and featuring your questions and answers. Listen every Monday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to Indiana Jones Myth Reality at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. We've been discussing the slave trade and alcohol in the Caribbean uh, with Dr. Frederick H. Smith, who is an authority on uh, the use and, I suppose, to some degree, the abuse of alcohol in uh, historic and, uh, to a lesser degree, prehistoric Caribbean, the prehistoric Caribbeans with a focus on Barbados. We've been talking about uh, the use of alcohol by West African slave groups that were brought in, obviously, by the British colonists. But uh, during the break, we were discussing also the role of rum, in particular, by the colonists themselves. Uh, We've sort of neglected them for this particular episode. Uh, Why don't you tell us a little bit about the role that rum and the the, uh, plantations themselves served in the development of a drinking society, if you will, in the Caribbean? Right, so so drinking today is is really a mosaic of of West African and uh, English uh, uh, British traditions, and um, you know the pouring of libations into graves could be found in West Africa, but it also could easily be found in Ireland as well. And um, my early work uh, in Barbados, uh, I I've done some my my research at uh, the College of William and Mary, my master's degree, and actually worked at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation for a while. And while I was there in the early 90s, work was just beginning to, to ramp up on, on Jamestown, the first English colonial settlement in uh, permanent or, or successful uh, settlement in, in North America. And I was sort of interested in, in doing similar work in the Caribbean. And I started doing excavations in Bridgetown, which was settled by the English in 1627, only 20 years after Jamestown, thinking about doing comparative work. And one of the things that really struck me at one of the sites uh, that I was excavating, a little site known as uh, Backchurch Street, um, that was uh, in the heart of what would have been the colonial capital of, of Barbados in the 17th century and the 1630s, 1640s, um, and one of the, the, the things that struck me was the, the rich amount of material culture um, from all over the world. Uh, you would get Spanish olive jars, and you would get uh, a French faience plates mm-hmm. and Delft, um, and a lot of this reflected the wealth of the of the sugar islands that Bridgetown was, uh, you know. Sugar was such an expensive commodity, and it was generating so much wealth, and there were hundreds of ships coming to Barbados to collect sugar in the early 17th century, and 
and they were bringing Chinese porcelains, and, and so there was just a, a really rich uh, ceramic record in particular. And when you compared that with, say, a site like Jamestown, um, which was a tobacco colony, it was the, the main port for the tobacco uh, growers in the early 17th century, but it never really had a, a bustling population, uh, never really had a, tobacco never generated the wealth uh, and the sort of nouveau riche uh, attitudes that, that occurred in, in Barbados. And the excavations revealed, um, and what really struck me was the large number of alcohol-related material mm-hmm. culture at, at the sites in Bridgetown, at these early English colonial sites. Um, you would get uh, Bartman Krugs, which were these stoneware uh, chugs that were used to transport wine to the Americas. Uh, but what was really telling were the large numbers of punch bowls. And I think I found 22 punch bowls that first summer, or fragments of 22 separate punch bowls, and uh, bottle glass and drinking mugs and just a, a lot of material culture associated uh, not so much with eating, but with drinking. And right. What I did was then I compared this with evidence from North America, so especially from Jamestown, right. where um, excavations at, at early mid 17th century sites in Jamestown revealed maybe a punch bowl or two, um, a lot of bottle glass, but but not so much in the way of punch bowls. And what I argue is that. Uh, Barbados, because of the wealth generated by sugar production, um, had a and and large numbers of of seamen and merchants and traders that were coming to Barbados to collect this sugar um, generated a, a kind of hyper sociability, um, uh-huh. and that that this is played out uh, in the the huge number of punch bowls uh, that were being found at, at the site. Um, I thought it was a tavern, but there was no documentary evidence to indicate it was a tavern. But even taverns in, in the Chesapeake wouldn't have contained so many so many punch bowls. And so the difference was in the Chesapeake, you tended to find a lot more bottles, individual bottles, suggesting a much more sort of solitary life, a more solitary form of drinking um, from an individual bottle rather than, than the punch bowls which really reflect sociability, the building of community, uh, the treating of strangers um, and visitors to Barbados. Barbadians uh-huh. love to treat their, their visitors um, and guests. And all these uh, references in the 17th century to, to various uh, visitors to Barbados always said, you know, as soon as they arrived, they were treated to drinks and immediately were, were drunk and uh, the Barbadians... <laughs> We, we only have we only have two minutes left, so um, no. I guess what you're saying is that there the cultural separation between the two groups groups was really pretty striking and sort of based on consumption patterns and, and generally uh, status situations in uh, in the colonial new world. Right, and and a sense of urbanity because uh, right, Bridgetown was a more urban center. Right, whereas. The Chesapeake tended to be small tobacco farms sort of spread out on this huge landscape. Right. Um, 
the size does matter in some cases. And on that note, we're going to have to wrap it up. <laughs> I want to express my thanks to Dr. Fred Smith, Associate Professor of Anthropology and Archaeology at the College of William and Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia, for his presentation on drinking and archaeology in the Caribbean and specifically in Barbados. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And until next week when we uh, broadcast another episode, uh, please keep in mind that knowledge of the past is your guideline to the future, and we will see you or we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you so much, and good evening. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.